A note before we begin, today's episode is still open and active. If you have information that can help, resources can be found at the end of this episode. It takes a village. People say this all the time, because by and large, it's true. Mothers and fathers aren't the only ones involved in raising a child. Teachers, friends, extended family all play important roles. Whether they're babysitting or leading a field trip, it takes a leap of faith to put your kids in someone else's hands. So when the unthinkable happens, when a child goes missing, those parents are left with more than just heartbreak. They're filled with betrayal, with the knowledge that someone they thought they could trust might actually be capable of violence. I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I'll discuss a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I'm talking about two sisters who disappeared from their Chicago home during summer break. Although police mounted a massive investigation, there's never been a single suspect or person of interest. Their names are Tianda and Diamond Bradley. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. It's around 6 a.m. on July 6, 2001, a Friday, and Tracy Bradley is about to head to work. Her on-again, off-again boyfriend, George Washington, has been at her apartment since early this morning. Now he's giving her a ride to another housing complex where she has a job in food services. Before she leaves, Tracy kisses two of her daughters goodbye. 10-year-old Tianda, and 3-year-old Diamond. Tracy has two more girls, Rita and Victoria, but they're staying with their grandmother. Tianda and Diamond are home because George is supposed to take them on a camping trip soon with Tracy. I'm not sure why George isn't bringing all of them on the getaway, especially since Victoria's birthday is tomorrow. 
It might be because, according to Tracy, George is Diamond's biological father. Though, as of June 2021, George has denied ever taking a DNA test to prove relation to Diamond Bradley. He might not be Tionda's father, but maybe he sees himself as her father figure. Besides, I wouldn't blame George for thinking Tionda would love a trip like this. She's rambunctious and adventurous, always dancing and riding her bike. And while she's sweet with her siblings, Tionda isn't shy about standing up to them if she thinks they're doing something wrong. At first glance, Diamond might seem like Tionda's opposite. She's shy around strangers and takes some time to warm up. But behind closed doors, when it's just friends or family, her personality shines. She plays hard, sometimes leaping from one piece of furniture to another. A great aunt compares her to a Tasmanian devil. But for now, she and Tionda have to rein in that energy and stay indoors, just like they always do when they're left home alone. They have pretty standard house rules. Don't let anyone in and don't go anywhere. And since it's summer break, there isn't really anywhere they have to be. Even though the girls probably have the rules memorized by now, Tracy repeats them all the same. Then she leaves, locking the door behind her. At several points that morning, Tracy calls to check in on them. Three times in one hour to be exact. But every time, the phone rings and rings and no one answers. Alarm bells immediately go off in Tracy's mind. Tionda's usually pretty good about answering the phone. She wouldn't let it go to voicemail three times. So only a few hours into her shift, Tracy climbs into George's car and he takes her home. She walks through the front door at around 11.30 a.m. Normally, the girls would be in the living room around now, maybe watching TV, but they're not there. They're not in their bedroom either, or Tracy's. And when she calls their names, no one answers. There's no sign of a struggle. It's like they just up and left. The only thing Tracy has to go on is a note on the back of the couch scrawled in Tionda's handwriting. Now, the FBI and police haven't released the full text to the public, but the gist is Tionda and Diamond are going out to a store, then either to a park or the school, which is really weird. First and foremost, because Tionda knows the rules. She's not supposed to leave the house and neither is Diamond. And even if they did decide to go play outside, Tionda wouldn't leave a note for her mom to find later. She'd call Tracy to talk about it. That's how they've always handled these situations in the past. Plus, the way the letter is written seems off. Even though the handwriting looks like Tionda's, the spelling and grammar are too perfect, and the word choice and phrasing just don't feel like her. It's almost like these aren't her words, like someone told Tionda what to write. At this point, Tracy's living every parent's worst nightmare. All the evidence suggests something bad happened to her daughters, but she has no idea what and no clue where to go from here. Luckily, she has a large group of people who are ready to help however they can. Tracy calls family members and some trusted neighbors to let them know what's going on. Meanwhile, she has one of her sisters pick Rita and Victoria up from their grandmother's house. They're only 12 and nine, but even they're going to get involved in the search. They all band together with a glaring exception. When Tracy asks George to help her, he says no. And there's one group that Tracy doesn't reach out to right away, the police. Later on, she'll be scrutinized for this decision, 
Lots of people will wonder why she doesn't call 911 as soon as she realizes Diamond and Tianda are missing. But Tracy has her reasons. The Black Lives Matter movement won't hit the mainstream for another decade. But throughout the 90s and early 2000s, the Chicago PD is widely criticized for the way they treat black people. In 1993, one police commander was fired for routinely beating and torturing black suspects to coerce them into making false confessions. Beyond losing his job, the commander was yet to face any legal consequences, nor had the department done anything to fix its racist culture. By 1998, an average of two official complaints about racially motivated police misconduct were filed every week. So it's understandable if Tracy's wary about involving the cops early on, especially if she believes the girls might just be playing in the area. Plus, at this point, she doesn't have proof her daughters have been abducted, just the sinking feeling in her gut. If it turns out the girls really are just at the store or the park or something, she doesn't want city officials to use this incident as an excuse to report her to Child Protective Services. With that in mind, Tracy and her loved ones start the search on their own. They look everywhere. The roads, the beach by Lake Michigan, other apartment complexes where the girls' friends live. They don't find anything. No new clues, no new information, and no sign of Diamond or Tianda. By about 7 p.m., Tracy doesn't see any other options. She has to call the police. I'm Darnell Ishmael, guest host of Bass Reeves, No Master But Duty, the special four-part miniseries from Solved Murders. I am honored to take you on a journey deep into the Old West to meet one of the greatest true crime heroes you may have never known existed, Bass Reeves. No Master But Duty reveals the true story of a formerly enslaved man who went on to become one of the most legendary U.S. Deputy Marshals in the American West, bringing justice to over 3,000 criminals. Follow Solved Murders and catch all four episodes of Bass Reeves' No Master But Duty. Listen for free, only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. By 2001, the Chicago PD doesn't have a great track record when it comes to cases involving Black people and Tracy Bradley is no exception. When she first reports her daughter's disappearance, the police classify Tianda and Diamond as missing, which means they're open to the possibility that the girls are runaways, off playing somewhere, or otherwise unharmed. That's not what Tracy wants to hear. Diamond is only three years old. She didn't just take off on her own. Tracy pushes back until the police agree to reclassify the girls as missing slash endangered meaning they didn't just disappear. They're also assumed to be at risk. It brings a much needed sense of urgency to the investigation. But according to the Bradley family, this isn't the only part of the case the police fumble. 
Shalia Bradley-Smith, Tianda and Diamond's great aunt, says investigators don't secure the scene to search for fingerprints or similar evidence until after officers have already stomped through Tracy's apartment, potentially contaminating it. The department couldn't confirm or deny her claims, and over the course of about 22 hours, police questioned Tracy four separate times. At first, she's cooperative, sharing everything she knows. But before long, the interrogation turns accusatory. It seems to put Tracy on the defensive. The department still seems to take Tracy's report pretty seriously. They immediately launch a massive manhunt, one the news calls the largest in Chicago history at that time. They canvass neighborhoods and patrol the streets. And in the interest of getting this story out there, actively seek out press coverage. Not long after the search starts, the evening news does a feature on the missing sisters, which is how many people first learned what happened, including family members that Tracy hasn't called yet. When one of their aunts turns on the TV, her nieces are the very first story she sees. She's shocked to tears at the coverage. So is her brother who calls her soon after. He asks, was that segment real? Are his nieces actually missing? But few take the disappearance to heart quite like the girl's great aunt, Shalia. Before sunrise the next morning, Shalia's parked outside Tracy's apartment building, watching everyone who comes in and out. Residents, guests, maintenance workers, and staff. She asks herself, who looks guilty? Who has access to Tracy's unit? Who might Tianda and Diamond willingly leave with? She nurses suspicions, but doesn't draw any hard conclusions. After all, anyone could be a kidnapper. While Shalia entertains dark thoughts outside the building, Tracy's sister Faith uncovers a new clue. The family is all on the same cell phone plan, which means Faith has access to Tracy's voicemail. She sees a new message from the day before and plays it. According to Faith, the missed call is from Tionda, saying, quote, Mom, mom, answer the phone. George is at the door with cake. End quote. I'm assuming George brought over a cake for Victoria's birthday. Remember, amidst all this, Victoria's turning nine. The family was going to celebrate before Tracy, George, Tianda, and Diamond headed out for the camping trip. As far as I can tell, this is the first piece of evidence that anyone dropped by the apartment before Tracy got home from work. And if it's true, it's pretty strange that George didn't mention it earlier. It is possible Tianda was talking about another George. Tracy's neighbor is also George, but he goes by a really distinct nickname, which is how Tianda usually refers to him. So most of the Bradley family assumes the call was about George Washington, Tracy's on-again, off-again boyfriend, and potentially Diamond's father. As for what the police do with that information, it's hard to say. We know they spoke with George at some point, but ultimately nothing comes of it. In fact, based on the reporting I've read, it seems like nobody can even agree on what happened to the voicemail. Tracy says she never got the chance to listen to it, they think she deleted it by accident, and another person close to the case hints it was turned over to the FBI. Whatever the truth is, another day goes by without any updates, not even a hint as to whether the girls are okay. At sundown, people in the neighborhood start to gather. Perhaps they pray and reminisce, try to reassure one another, grieve as they consider the worst case scenario. 
The vigil is organized by a local reverend named Bamani Obadeli. He's an activist and leader in the community, but more importantly, he knows the family. He has daughters close to Diamond and Tionda's age. He sympathizes with Tracy and all the Bradleys and wants to support them. Every evening afterward, the Reverend organizes these get-togethers to honor the girls. If Tionda and Diamond are out there watching the news, they'll know they're missed. And of course, the nightly crowd draws attention, which ensures the case stays in the spotlight. And there's another way to drum up attention, press conferences. There's one scheduled just four days after the disappearance, but Tracy doesn't show up to the event. Now, I wanna be clear, there are plenty of valid reasons she may not wanna come. She's likely still processing her fear, anxiety, and grief about what happened. It could be triggering in all sorts of different ways. I don't know if they've started already, but Tracy does develop reoccurring panic attacks at some point after the girls go missing. So in my opinion, it's understandable if she doesn't want to talk to reporters and journalists right now. But not everyone gives Tracy the benefit of the doubt. People think it's odd that she doesn't attend an event that's all about finding Diamond and Tionda. Tracy also makes some other choices that only add to people's negative perceptions of her. She stops cooperating with detectives early in the investigation, shortly after one of her aggressive interrogation sessions. She won't even open the door when investigators come to tell her about possible new leads. For example, the same day as the press conference, a nearby shop records security footage of two girls that fit Tionda and Diamond's descriptions. The police invite Tracy to see the clip and confirm if the girls on the tape are her daughters, but she refuses to even watch it. She says her attorney advised her not to. Some family members head over to the police department later that day instead, but officials tell them they've already handed the footage over to the FBI, so it's not available anymore. If everyone comes back later in the week, they can watch it then. Ultimately, all this back and forth is for nothing. The girls in the clip apparently aren't Tionda and Diamond. Investigators are back at square one. And now they're making public statements describing Tracy as uncooperative, but they don't name her as a suspect. In fact, they haven't named anyone. Despite the sheer size of the investigation, they're not any closer to tracking down the girls. In the first week alone, almost 500 Chicago PD officers searched for Tionda and Diamond. That's not counting the 20 FBI agents, 19 police dogs, and more than a dozen staff members from other departments. They go door to door talking to residents. They dig through 42 tons of garbage looking for any sign of the girls. When that doesn't pan out, investigators dredge lakes, scour forests, and survey thousands of abandoned buildings. It doesn't produce anything definitive. Most people speculate Tionda and Diamond must have left the apartment with someone they knew. They wouldn't break Tracy's rules for a stranger. And remember, there wasn't any sign of a struggle. But even that conclusion doesn't do much to narrow things down. The public keeps pointing fingers at Tracy or at George. They ignore many other people who are around the girls. Neighbors, teachers, family friends who were right there in the apartment watching a Cubs game the night before Tionda and Diamond disappeared. And the longer the case goes unsolved, the more suspicion seems to grow. The family is forced to examine their every relationship and ask, do I know what this person is really capable of?
On July 25th, 2001, roughly three weeks after Tianda and Diamond Bradley disappear, newspapers run a warning. An unidentified man has been sexually harassing and groping young girls in Chicago's South Side. So far, he's attacked 13 individuals. And while there's nothing specifically connecting him to Tianda and Diamond, the girls are referenced in the same news story. The reporter notes that the police had not found a link between this attack and the girl's disappearance. It's not clear if detectives ever found a solid connection, but they do focus on the fathers of Tracy's other children. The police say they're paying very close attention to a few people, but they don't reveal any names to the public. In the end, detectives admit they can't find enough evidence to charge any of them. While authorities are tight-lipped, the public seems to hone in on one person, the man Tracy suspected to be Diamond's father, George Washington. When the girls went missing, Tracy and George were in the middle of a child support dispute. At one point, George tried to deny he was related to Diamond at all, but Tracy demanded he take a paternity test. George still denies ever taking the test. Now, besides his stance in the child support battle, there are a few other things people think are suspicious about George. I already mentioned one of them, the possibility that he stopped by Tracy's apartment that morning after dropping her off at work and before taking her home. Some also point to the fact that when police dug into his plans to take a camping trip, he never booked a campsite. He borrowed some equipment from friends, but it's far from everything they would have needed. Some people have pointed out that while he didn't get food or water jugs, he did go out and buy gloves and large garbage bags. Then shortly after the girls go missing, George's neighbors report he's burning something in a 55 gallon drum in his backyard garage. Apparently once everything inside is destroyed, George loads the container into his car and drives off. He returned roughly 45 minutes later. When he's questioned about it, George denies ever owning a 55-gallon drum or burning anything, which I will say sounds suspicious because there's evidence of a fire inside the garage and the marks in the trunk of his car are consistent with hauling a barrel of that size. And that's not even the most concerning part. Police identify Tianda's hair in a blanket in his trunk and his cell phone ping suggests he may have spent some time in a nearby forested area he was familiar with. Now, George can explain some of these details. He's a professional manual laborer and says he was refurbishing his house the day his neighbors saw him in the garage. When they watched him drive off, he was probably getting rid of some trash from the home improvement project. Plus, even the police have to admit it's pretty unlikely the girls were in that barrel. Burning human flesh has a distinct smell that the neighbors definitely would have noticed. That said, they can't rule out the possibility that the drum was full of some other evidence, like say, Tianda and Diamond's clothes. As for the hairs in the trunk, there are plenty of innocent ways they could have ended up there. If Tianda threw her backpack or some extra clothes into the trunk, there could have been hairs attached. George says before the abduction, he took all four girls and their mother to a drive-in movie. He admits that he didn't want to pay full price for admission, so he snuck Diamond and Tianda in by having them sit in the trunk, which would explain the hair. But there's a complication. The girl's sister, Rita, says this story never happened. Now, none of this proves George is guilty, but it certainly doesn't exonerate him either. We don't know if the police are actively pursuing an arrest at this point, 
and it appears the evidence is not conclusive enough anyway. And for all I know, there might be some other clue that hasn't been made public, an airtight alibi or something else that points to his innocence. Without an arrest or formal charges, I can't say for sure how seriously they take him as a suspect. All any of us have are suspicions, and suspicions can't hold the public's interest forever. When Tianda and Diamond first went missing, their friends and neighbors hosted a vigil every night for 40 nights. Hundreds of people showed up to pray, but by the time night 41 rolls around in early August, numbers fizzle. It doesn't help that many have questions about Tracy and George. After this, the nightly vigil becomes monthly and only draws a few dozen attendees. Then, on September 11th, 2001, the terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center kick off a fresh news cycle. It's like the world moves on and forgets about Tionda and Diamond Bradley. And as public attention wanes, so does the official investigation. Around this time, Reverend Obadelli, the same minister who put together the vigils, decides to try a new approach. He's been involved with the case since the beginning, even becoming a formal spokesperson for the family. Now he helps organize a fundraiser and uses the cash to hire a private detective. It's a smart move. I already mentioned that the people in Tionda and Diamond's community don't trust the police. Maybe they would be willing to share what they know with a PI, but even he doesn't get much further than officials. The next few years are marked with little progress and worse. Discoveries that seem like they might crack the case open that end up being red herrings. Early on in the investigation, police turn up this freshly dug pile of dirt in the forest, like something was recently buried, but that doesn't go anywhere. A religious leader anonymously reports that they had a psychic vision of two bags plummeting into a specific lagoon. Officials drag the water, but they don't find anything. In 2002, investigators examine a bone discovered near the shores of Lake Michigan, it looks like a child's finger, about the right size for one of the girls. But they determine it came from an animal. Three years after that, officials find human remains on Chicago's south side. It's the same story. They aren't Diamond or Tionda. Most recently, in 2019, a full 18 years after the girls went missing, a woman contacts Shalia Bradley-Smith, their great aunt on Facebook, she says she's Tionda, still alive, but unable to get back to her family for some reason. Shalia and the rest of the Bradleys are skeptical, and with good reason. It turns out the woman's lying. In the midst of all these false starts and heartbreaking letdowns, the Bradleys and their extended family keep digging on their own. They have to. By July 6, 2021, there's just a single investigator assigned to the once massive case. Shalia may not be parked outside Tracy's apartment to watch who comes and goes anymore, but she's just as committed as ever. She even becomes a missing children's advocate. At one point, she volunteers to search for a 10-year-old Minnesota boy and plays an important role in locating his body. Although her efforts help resolve his case, they leave her feeling hollow. She asks God why she hasn't managed to find her own missing family members. Still, Shalia keeps trying, 
At different times, she works in public aid and in a hospital's pediatric ward, all in hopes that she might come across a clue or eyewitness that breaks the case wide open. She's dedicated to the point of neglecting other parts of her life. I don't know the full details, but eventually she loses her job and housing as a result of her crusade. Even then, Shalia keeps pushing. Now, I'd like to point out that this is not an uncommon occurrence. From my experience, many people make the search for their missing loved one the top priority in their life above all else, including paying their bills. I can't speak for Shalia, but I do know what that feels like. To feel guilty every time you sit on the couch to watch a show when you could be helping. For every major life event to feel less without them. And how your brain just can't fully rest until there's some type of resolution. Other family members grapple with fear. What happened to Diamond and Tianda colors every aspect of their lives. Tracy's sister Faith, the aunt who discovered Tianda's voicemail, worries something will happen to her kids too. She demands her landlord put up a seven-foot-tall fence around her home. Rita can't get the disappearance out of her mind. As she grows up, she's terrified she and her remaining sister, Victoria, will also be kidnapped. Tracy seems to share that fear because she becomes incredibly protective over the two girls. When Rita has children of her own, she makes them follow extremely strict rules. They're not even allowed to visit friends at their houses, only family members. A 2018 episode of Case Files Chicago profiled Tianda and Diamond's disappearance. Toward the end, it features statements from the girl's aunt and grandmother, who each repeated the same refrain. Someone must have seen something. Someone must have heard something. Someone must know something. If you know what happened, please come forward. There are a lot of interviews and TV specials like this, where Tianda and Diamond's family talk about the girls and ask for help. It's honestly kind of incredible. Even though Tracy is very private these days, her daughters don't lack advocates. Her family has rallied around them. For Tracy and other parents of missing children, that's the other side of the coin. Yes, there are risks that come with trusting other people around your kids, but there are also some wonderful benefits. It means you have people to turn to when it feels like the world is spinning out of control. It means you can step out of the spotlight to protect your sanity and still have allies, a community that won't let your children fade into obscurity. This might be why decades after they went missing, those close to the case are still certain they'll solve it because there are too many people who will not rest until they know what happened to Diamond and Tianda. Too many people who care. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to finish this episode, 30 people disappeared in the United States alone. Anyone with information about the Bradley sisters is encouraged to contact the Chicago Police Department at 312-747-5789, FBI Illinois at 312-421-6700, or the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children at 1-800-THE-LOST. 
If you or someone you know needs assistance with a missing persons case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. For full disclosure, I am a member of the board. It's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Disappearances is a Spotify original from ParCast, executive produced by Max Cutler. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production, and quality control by Spencer Howard. Allie Wicker is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Disappearances was written by Angela Jorgensen, edited by Natalie Pertsovsky and Aaron Lan. Fact-checked by Kevin Johnson. Researched by Mickey Taylor. Produced by Aaron Larson, with sound design by Alex Button. I'm your host, Sarah Turney. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice. I'm Darnell Ishmael. This February on Solved Murders, join me for a four-part miniseries on the incredible life and career of Bass Reeves, one of the preeminent U.S. Deputy Marshals in the American West. In Bass Reeves, No Master But Duty, discover how a man born into slavery took freedom by force and brought over 3,000 criminals to justice, including his own son. Follow Solved Murders and catch all four episodes of Bass Reeves, No Master But Duty. Listen for free, only on Spotify.